KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks to all of you for being with us uh, today. I want to get right to the panel because, as always, we have plenty to talk about. Uh, Kevin Riley, my partner on the Thursday show, is uh, with us. He, of course, is the editor, the boss of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, Kevin, thanks for being here. At some point today, yesterday, we spent a good amount of time being able to uh, really dig deeply into your some of the polling data that your new poll uh, has produced, and we're going to do more of that today. So thank you for giving us so much to talk about. Well, yeah, Bill, it's good to be here. Looking forward to our discussion, and uh, we're excited about uh, all of the polling information we've been able to put out there so that uh, our, our readers and your listeners can get find out things firsthand as opposed to how politicians may want to spin them. And today, um, in a little while, we'll look at uh, what your poll reveals about how voters feel about the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and how it might affect the elections in the fall. It's a double Riley Day again on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley's here, but so is our GPB public policy reporter, Riley Bunch, who has just been named rising star in Georgia journalism. Riley, thanks for being with us. Thanks for that introduction, Bill. Love a, love a double Riley day. It's always a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Tammy Greer is back with us. She, of course, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Tammy, why don't we, um, in just a second, I want to give you a chance to make your big announcement, but, but let me first introduce a brand new panelist uh, for our show. Um, we're really pleased to uh, have John Bailey. He's the boss, the editor of the Rome News Tribune, and it's a really d delightful uh, a feeling to have be able to welcome you to the show, John. Thanks for being here. Really excited to be here. Like I said earlier, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Just to give people a sense of uh, your newspaper, I was looking at the front page, the digital front page today, and among the story, mm -hmm. one of the stories is about a big teacher pep rally. As the new school year uh, gets underway uh, in in uh, Rome and in Floyd County, there's a story about the fact that the Rome and Floyd County commissions are going to load, are voting to lower tax rates. Um, there's another really interesting story. Uh, your police chief up there, Denise Downer McKinney, was named Outstanding Chief of the Year by the uh, Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. So that's just a little bit of the work that you're doing mm -hmm. up at the paper, and I wanted to let people know about it. Thank you. All right, um, let's get right to it. Um, Riley, I'm going to start with you because you filed the first uh, story on this, and, and I know Tia Mitchell did for the AJC as well. Uh, yesterday, uh, a House committee uh, decided it was time to hear testimony from gun manufacturers. Two of them showed up for the testimony, and one of them was Marty Daniel, CEO and founder of Daniel Defense, which is located down in southeast Georgia. And um, he was asked repeatedly whether he believes that his semi-automatic weapon, his version of the AR-15, which was used in the Uvalde shooting, um, really uh, he, he should take any responsibility uh, for what happens when one of his weapons is used in a massacre like that. Um, and let me read you the quote that you had and then open the uh, floor for conversation. Many Americans, myself included, he said, have witnessed an erosion of personal responsibility in our country and in our culture. Mass shootings are all but unheard, were all but unheard of just a few decades ago. So what's changed? Not the firearms. They're substantially the same as those manufactured over 100 years ago. I believe our nation's response needs to focus not on the type of gun, but on the type of persons who are likely to commit mass shootings. There's, it, that's just a fancier way of saying what uh, th those uh, folks have said all along, which is uh, uh, 
guns don't kill people, people kill people. Riley? Yeah, and just to provide a little bit of context, um, so this was a hearing in a House Oversight and Reform Committee in Congress. So in May, they had sent out letters to four big gun manufacturers, including Daniel Defense, requesting marketing and sales information from their companies on military-style semi-automatic rifles. Um, so they got back thousands and thousands of pages of profit numbers, marketing ads, things like that. And, and Democrats on this committee are accusing gun manufacturers of, quote, profiting off of mass shootings, right? Um, so we had two of the gun manufacturers, including um, Dan, Marty Daniel from Daniel Defense, testify in, in what was a really long committee hearing yesterday. Um, and everyone's latching onto this quote that he said that, you know, he's blaming an erosion of personal responsibility. Um, and of course, the Democrat head of the committee jumped back on him and said, will you take any personal responsibility for the kids killed in Uvalde shooting because his a Daniel Defense gun was used in this? Um, and, you know, as, as the gun industry has upheld that they should not be kind of punished in this way for um, actions that people take using their products. But a lot of the hearing, too, was about how um, the gun manufacturers market their products and use military tropes and target young men and use the images of masculinity, right, to boost their sales. And I think the craziest thing to latch on to all of this, despite the partisan back and forth, was the numbers that they collected. So Daniel Defense in the last three years, tripled their, their sales from semi-automatic rifles from $40 million to $120 million. So that, that really says a lot. Uh, Kevin, that was exactly what I uh, focused on as well. And, and your uh, piece in this morning's AJC uh, uh, singles that out as well. Uh, Carolyn Maloney, the chair of the committee, uh, pointed out that um, the five companies that they wanted to have testify made over $1 billion selling assault weapons in the past decade. Kevin? Well, sure. I mean, it is a huge business. And uh, there's a couple things that I think are sort of playing out here, but not crystal clear. Is First of all, the Democrats have definitely, and, and the anti-gun uh, side of this argument, is definitely going down the path, not unlike they, uh, t tobacco companies were attacked. Let's go at the product and the profits and the way it's marketed to whom it's marketed as a strategy. It, it remains to be seen whether that can work in this case. The other thing we should remember as Georgians is that a lot of gun manufacturers have moved here and to other states in the South as states in the North and Northeast have tightened up gun laws and, and taken a different approach. So it is big business. It is. Uh, it involves a lot of money and a lot of employees. I mean, I don't know if you've ever driven on the highway into Savannah, but the the huge uh, building, um, you know, for the company that where the C, of the CEO testified from Georgia yesterday, very impressive. I mean, it's it it is a statement without question of welcome to Georgia, where we make a lot of guns. Um, John, I, I, there's one part of what uh, Marty Daniel said that I think is worth uh, looking at a little more carefully. He said that not much has changed in the guns over what ha we had 100 years ago. But in fact, part of the problem is how much the guns have changed. We didn't have the kind of semiotic military-style weapons uh, that can be used in in these mass shootings where it's so easy to fire many rounds in a matter of seconds. So whether you agree with him or not, that this isn't a problem of the gun manufacturers. This is a problem of individuals who need to be more carefully monitored. He's sort of misstating it when he tries to uh, act as if we these uh, military-style weapons have been around for 100 years. Well, I think if you're if you're talking about like a gun, a gun shoots a bullet. Maybe that's that's the the argument that he's he's dialing in on. Um, you know, however, I would say that quantity. You have type, and then you have quantity of weapons that are that are available, and so we have, you know, any number of the of issues just just from that. So you can say, okay, people people lack personal responsibility, or there's been a a decline in personal responsibility, but you have that. Plus the amount of, of guns that are readily available. I mean, you see, talk to any police officer, talk to any law enforcement agency, talk to the feds. I mean, they're they're just out there all over the place. Uh, and I mean, you put those two things together, 
this is what we got. Um, so personal Amy, responsibility, oh, like, I'm sorry. No, no, I you finish your thought. I was just saying, just like Kevin said, with, with big tobacco, I mean, even I could, even more recently, it sounds very much like the argument where they're going against, uh, where, where people are, are, are suing opioid manufacturers uh, who marketed, you know, these as safe, you know, great drugs to use, that kind of thing. And, and, and essentially, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like they're marketing in a very similar fashion. Tammy? Sure. So I I thought the comments were very interesting, um, particularly when we look at um, the assault weapons ban, the 10-year ban in 1994, mm -hmm. between uh, 1994 and 2004, and you had a decline in mass shootings, right? Um, which means that you had, you know, a, a pro-life stance, if you will, where people were living and not um, being you know, killed and shot in, in mass shootings. Um, but you see that even after the 1994 assault weapons ban was expired in 2004, not only did you have an increase in mass shootings, you also had, um, as was stated previously, uh, an increase in profits for these particular um, gun manufacturers. I find the conversation um, fascinating because um, the the substantial um, uh, substantially being the same in all of these arguments that are um, really counter to what facts are, um, just to continue on with the, uh, again, the distorted understanding of what the Second Amendment is, because we forget before the comma uh, for the Second Amendment, um, allows for this kind of um, uh, two sides to every story, particularly when it comes to the issue of guns. Riley, um, we had Georgia law uh, congressmen who were on this committee and Buddy Carter, who's not on the committee, but represents the area where Daniel Defense is located, was allowed to sit in. But we had Hank Johnson, the Democrat, and uh, two Republicans, Jody Heiss and Andrew Clyde. And of course, Andrew Clyde owns a, a gun store. Uh, so that's going to shape a lot of how he feels about this subject. I think it's safe to say, and and not surprisingly, uh, they split on whether they feel that the gun makers bear any responsibility in these mass shootings. And I think it's interesting, Riley, to hear one of the things that Jody Heiss had to say. He said, "Yes, violent crime is on the increase. That's a concern for all of us. But to go after the manufacturers of guns." while at the same time remaining soft on crime, defunding the police, supporting those policies, keeping our southern border open for all sorts of criminals is absolutely disgusting to me and unthinkable and the height of irresponsibility and lack of accountability. It, 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 frankly, uh, Riley, that strikes me as such a diversionary tactic from the subject at hand. Well, I mean, that's what you're going to get in these kinds of committee hearings that are on such hot button issues, especially in the Oversight Reform Committee. Um, they take on really big issues like this um, when they kind of do these hearings. And I think all this goes to say that it sets up a bigger battle in Congress, right, because Dem Democrats are pushing for a vote in the House on a semi-automatic rifle ban. Um, and we're going to have Republicans pushing back against that kind of, hey, look, but what about this issue? What about this issue? What about this issue? Right. Um, so we can see what actually might happen in Congress. Remember, we did get some gun reform um, after the Oversight and Reform's first committee hearing with um, all the victims of the recent shootings. So we'll see what this all sets up on the floors of the, the different chambers. Riley's right. I mean, there's a lot of whataboutism and, and things on both sides that don't, where no one seems interested in truly understanding the issue and what can be done about it. My favorite Daniel defense story is the one where they wanted to run a, uh ad for uh, selling guns during the Super Bowl. And of course, they knew the NFL would never allow such an ad. I mean, and they then they benefited from the controversy of the ad being refused. So it is an inauthentic discussion in our country. And until it becomes more authentic, it's going to be virtually impossible to get to sensible solutions. Well, if, if you don't mind, Kevin, I want to expand a little bit on just what you talked about. Back in 2014, John, uh, the marketing department, Daniel is known for being superior mm -hmm. marketing 
uh, uh, company. They really know how to uh, 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 sell their weapons out there. And back in 2014, they had a really fascinating scheme. They knew the Super Bowl, the NFL was not going to allow them to run an ad for their weapon on the Super Bowl. But they had a plan for the possibility that one of two things could happen. If the ad was rejected, which it was, and which they assumed it would be, they went out and were prepared to go to the Sean Hannity's and other Fox News uh, personalities and talk about censorship. And that's what happened. And they got a lot of publicity. But here's what made it even uh, more kind of brilliant in its uh, 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 perversity, in a way. They were also prepared that if the NFL had, for some reason, accepted the ad, they were prepared to go out and try to ramp up liberal outrage over the fact that their gun commercial was going to be on the Super Bowl, and they would have benefited from that. And the, the head of marketing in a deposition about all this said that it was probably the most brilliant marketing campaign they'd ever put together. And in fact, when the ad was rejected, it was the best thing that happened to the company, John. I mean, I, I, you know, you hate to you hate to look at something like this and say, hey, uh, you got a good marketing team. But I mean, that's really what you got. <laughs> you have, you know, you have a marketing team that understands earned media versus, you know, paid advertising and, and knows how to go after it. And I mean, you know, John knows a little something about this, right? Because he lives up in Marjorie Taylor Greene's neighborhood. And with each outrage that she uh, puts out there, her fundraising numbers improve, right, John? It's absolutely true. I mean, you know, for each time, yeah, for each time that she that there's a controversy surrounding, you know, our congressional representative in the 14th district. I mean, there was, a, I mean, you guys did a great story. Several other places did a, did a pretty good story about just tracking those spikes in uh in fundraising you know after each particular controversy i mean that's it's 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 well done i'm gonna say well done <laughs> yeah well we're gonna we're gonna ask you to tell us a little more about what's going on in that 14th district race since you're right up in the heart of the district uh, in a little while but riley let's get one last word in on this subject before we move on i think we brought up a really good point that they were trying to make in the committee hearing yesterday right is that the manufacturers know what they're doing. They have very, very smart marketing teams. They tap into very, very um, specific aspects of society to sell their products, right? So, it, you know, it is a strategy that they, they have and they're executing with these sales. Uh, w one last thing, and, and Tammy, I'll give you a last shot at this. Uh, I, I mean, no pun. Um, you know, I've said often when we talk about guns on this show that gun ownership crosses partisan lines. I mean, Democrats have guns. Democrats believe it's important to have guns to protect themselves or their families, or they like to go shooting in various settings um, as much as Republicans do. Um, so we have to be careful to point that out. But it truly is Republicans who uh, are the ones who turn it into an issue about you either support the Second Amendment and free use of weapons, or you oppose the Second Amendment because you want restrictions. It's a black or white issue for them. Absolutely. And, and I think that that's what is um, putting things intentionally polarizing uh, matters that don't need to be polarized is, is what is creating this type of, of, of rift between um, gun owners and or people who support, um, you know, a more measuredness when it comes to gun safety. You know, I grew up in a household where my dad had, I think, four or five guns and we knew exactly where they were um, and no one touched them. And he was very clear about it. Um, at the same time, we understood um, the the magnitude of it, and it wasn't a frivolous thing. So I I find the the, the intentional polarization of guns as well as other issues to be um, the artificial creation and artificial division where many of us are on the same page with many policy matters. Um, however, very few people are winning. Um, when it comes to polarizing these issues, and in this case, it's gun manufacturers. All right. Why don't we do this? Uh, let's give Tammy the last word on this segment of Political Rewind. Let's take a break a little bit early because I really do want to come back and look with the panel at the new polling 
from uh, the AJC on how people are reacting to the SCOTUS decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and how it might impact their votes in the fall. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Riley Bunch, Kevin Riley, John Bailey joins us for the first time. He is the editor of the Rome News Tribune, and Tammy Greer from Clark Atlanta University. I introduced you last, Tammy, because I want to give you a moment to tell people about this wonderful project that you're putting together at Clark Atlanta University. You're going to do a series. You're hoping you'll be able to uh, host a series of debates. Tell us just a little bit about that. Yes, thank you. Uh, So Clark Atlanta University along with the League of Women Voters of Georgia, um, as well as the League of Women Voters of Atlanta Fulton County and the ACLU of Georgia, are collaborating to host um, six um, political forums um, on the campus of Clark Atlanta University um, or the AU Center uh, at the Woodruff Library. Um, We are looking at, uh, we've invited all qualified candidates um, who will appear on the general election ballot um, for key races. Um, this includes the governor's race, which is our first race on August 18th. Um, and then we will have Public Service Commission, Labor Commission, Secretary of State, Attorney General, and um, the Lieutenant Governor. Um, so those races um, are our key points, and we are targeting statewide these races, these constitutional races, um, in order to bring um, not only civic education, uh, but also awareness of who these candidates are. Um, and we are, even though we're starting with the governor's race, the two races that we feel have a large impact, a great impact on people that most folks don't know, Public Service Commission and Labor Commission, uh, we have those you know, at the beginning of our series rather than at the end. So we're looking forward to it. We'll have more advertising about it, um, and we hope that if people are not able to come in person, we'll be able to stream it uh, so that they can be aware of who these candidates are. Well, I wish you well, and we'll be interested in following your progress and, of course, in paying attention to these forums uh, when they get underway. So um, we'll keep track of that. All right, Kevin Riley, uh, you're releasing at the AJC various uh, pieces of your polling done by the University of Georgia, 902, I believe, the screen likely uh, voters in the state. Yesterday, we talked about the uh, big horse races, the U.S. Senate, uh, the governor, and a couple of the down-ballot races. And we can get into that a little today as well. But why don't we start with the, the, the big piece of the poll from today, which is people's attitudes about the ruling of the Supreme Court and about abortion. Kevin, uh, your pollsters found that a majority of Georgians uh, believe that uh, abortion should be uh, legal. A smaller number, although a plurality, say that uh, they are likely to choose candidates who want to uh, preserve the right to choice. Have I got that correct? Yes, you do. And I know we're going to get into this implica- the implications for uh, some of the candidates uh, in, in Georgia's races here shortly. And then, Bill, I would just... Um, if you'll you'll indulge me for a moment, just remind listeners first, if you're impatient to see all the results of the poll, as I know Riley Bunch always is, um, you can go to our website and it, there's actually an interactive uh, tool there where you can look at different demographics and things. And then second, there's also an explanation of how we did the poll and how it works, because some people can be very skeptical of the value of polls. And so what we try to do is let people know exactly how it was done. But bottom line is it's been very consistent in Georgia now for a while that people did not want the Roe decision overturned and that they that a significant number of people support 
the idea that abortion um, should be allowed. There, it's probably not entirely clear some of the uh, limitations on abortion, uh, and I think that will be an ongoing debate. Although, as you know, there is a movement among Republicans to just ban every abortion in every case, no matter what going on right now. And that seems it seems to be clear in our poll that that's not what people want. Riley, um, so the it, it is interesting that although, uh, again, a majority of people say that abortion should be the right to choose should be uh, uh, legal. They're not happy with the Supreme Court decision. Um, the fact of the matter is that um, it's a smaller number than it was before the decision of the Supreme Court. Yeah, and I think it's also important to point out um, that this is one of those issues where we see movement on the state level in a different direction than what um, voters are saying that they want, right? But it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And um, as Kevin mentioned, with the candidates and coming up, you know, that, that number is smaller, but it's still consistent, right? So does this give Democrats an opening for swing and moderate voters who might switch sides on this issue, not so sure, like it could. Um, it'll be interesting to see how this is framed going forward in terms of the general election campaign. John, um, I, I get that people are saying, some 42% say that they're likely to choose a candidate who supports choice. Um, so I, I really want to throw this to you with two questions in mind. Number one, do, it, it's do we really think that in the long run, when we walk into the polling place, that's going to be the top issue on their mind, and they might actually uh, uh, vote for the pro-choice candidate rather than the uh, than the pro-life candidate? Or is that sort of an expression of a belief that is going to be outweighed by it, 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 the the economy, the price of groceries, and that sort of thing? I mean, we'll we, you know we'll have to see whether what the economy continues to do, but I think I think there's a lot of people who are or that is a, a their big topic right now. I mean, there's you know just from hearing another thing, and I, and I haven't looked at this, so I'd be I'd be interested in how that poll sort of breaks down between rural and urban areas as well. I mean, just for my own uh, use, but I mean, I really do. I I think that that abortion right now is a a very a very important topic to a lot of voters. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see how it weighs out. Tammy, you look at voter motivation, and uh, it's a big issue is in, in, in your work. What do you think about how, whether people really are going to put that top of mind when they go to vote? Sure. Um, first, if I could, abortion and inflation appear on its face, the way one talks about it as separate issues. Yet, you know, they go together, right? Because if we're talking about um, if if uh, a candidate who doesn't want to talk about women's bodily autonomy and then they pivot to inflation, um, well, we can just pivot right back and, and uh, demonstrate that um, the cost of going to the doctor, gas, um, rearing a child, uh, diapers, food, blah, 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 all of that that um, encapsulate rearing a child is, is uh, economic. So if we want to talk about economics, let's do that. Let's also connect it with women's bodily autonomy. Um, and uh, I think that if we um, start to connect these issues together and show the interdependency, then, then perhaps it could be a complicated situation depending on who you are. At the same time, if we um, put the items together and show that they're not separate, then it, it, it can be, you know, a decision that folks make and it's, it is still there in their mind. Um, and I, I, as I'm hoping my paper will get published really soon, Bill, I challenge the notion of pro-life used in this manner. Because if it is about life, then it is about the totality of life and quality of life, rather than it being a pro-birth and pro-uterus issue. Um, just to add a couple of, of uh, thoughts to that, so we all understand exactly what you're saying and this paper that you're working on. Sure. So it, it's, it's challenging what it is to this so-called pro-life movement, um, it, <clears throat> because uh, even the National Right to Life says that education, um, housing, and all of these other parts 
um, for folks that are here, um, that is not as important as one having breath. And so if it is an issue of life, then we're concerned about schooling, child welfare, social welfare programs. We're concerned about environmental issues and the like. These are aspects of life. What um, folks who are anti-bodily autonomy are looking toward is whether or not a woman is a vessel in order to give birth. So those are two separate issues, yet as we've talked about before, the way that folks are able to market um, their particular campaign um, appears to be one way, yet the implementation is very different. Well, okay, so Kevin Riley, uh, just to pick up on what Tammy said uh, this morning, um, and I, I apologize, I didn't send this out to all of you, but the New York Times today did a state-by-state look at how all of the states are dealing with uh, 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 women issue with, with women giving birth, with uh, maternal care after birth, with maternal health, and that sort of thing. And uh, Georgia, uh, is as we're, it's not surprising, ranks right down there near the bottom. It, the state, according to the New York Times, is 45th in terms of insured women. It is 43rd in terms of maternal mortality. That's a, that's a, a, a data point we've talked about often on this show, and which the legislature in the past year has tried to make some adjustments in. They, they expanded Medicare for women to the full year uh, that they can have postpartum uh, care, but we're 45th in infant mortality and 38th in child poverty. So, Kevin, what Tammy's talking about is an important part of the conversation. If we're going to have a virtual ban on abortion, then it's going to mean the state legislature is going to have to look at ways they can strengthen all of the supports for women and their infant children. Yeah, and the state has moved in that direction, although I, I think some would argue timidly with, with some of the bills that were passed in the last session. But without question, uh, Tammy makes this core case that if you believe in how, whatever terminology you want to use, pro-life, right to life, you know, all those things, then do you mean just birth or do you mean a whole life? Because it is appalling that a state that, I don't think there's any other word to describe it, but appalling, a state that brags about being the number one state in the country in which to do business, which has implications for workforce and lifestyle and prosperity and economic opportunity, is also 45th ranked in infant mortality. I mean, that's tragic. That puts us behind some third world countries. And at some level, we have to care about that, no matter where you stand on the abortion debate. John, I want to turn, if I may, to another finding in the poll that really leapt out at me um, because it, it was the question was asked. It's a, a generic question. Uh, in general, would you rather see a Republican or a Democrat elected to Congress was essentially the question. And interestingly enough, uh, it was pretty close. 46% uh, in the AJC poll said they'd rather have a Republican, 41% said they'd rather have a Democrat. And that mirrors what we're seeing across the country, where the generic ballot in congressional races puts Democrats and Republicans on a fairly level playing field. And yet, of course, John, gerrymandering means that it really doesn't matter uh, whether you'd rather have a one party or the other uh, representing you, because the districts have been drawn in such a way that you're going to get what the legislature and the governor of any given state, including Georgia, want you to have. Well, I mean, it's interesting. So, I mean, you know, and so I, I can talk specifically about the congressional district I live in, in the 14th district. Absolutely. Where they added a portion of, kind of took a bite out of southern Cobb County as, as they split, you know, Cobb County up. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, there, there were several people who were unhappy about that, um, including our representative. Um, and so it's, 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 it is, it's interesting because we're already talking about a district that was, that seems like it felt like it was carved out to be, you know, this deep, deep, deep red district. Right. And, and, you know, they're like, okay, well, we can take this part of Cobb 
And sure, it's going to dilute that to a degree, I mean, to a minor degree, um, but still, nonetheless, we can reach in there and grab that instead of, of, of more accurately, in my mind, looking at the district as a whole and, hey, here's a group of voters, you know, in this area that not necessarily how they would vote or what have you, but putting that together and saying, this makes sense. And then moving on to the next one, this makes sense. And of course, there's a talk about political, um, I'm sorry, there's talk about, um, you know, bipartisan groups or, or nonpartisan groups doing this. But I mean, you have to get the winner of this past season's elections or, you know, the past several season's elections to weigh in on that. And it's a rare group that's going to happily give up power. I think just to add, you know, that all of this combined when we talk about the extreme polarization, but also, you know, we have a Democrat majority at the federal level, we are still not really getting anything done. Um, It points to how important these state elections are right now. And I think that's what a lot of the campaigns are kind of running on, especially with this abortion conversation that we're talking about, um, because the, the decision on abortion rights has been giving back to the states, right? There, there isn't any federal protections anymore that we've had for so long. So when you talk about state election being so important and you couple it, couple it with like the redistricting that we had, you know, it really shows that you're gonna get the extreme polarization on both sides, right? So um, state politics matter, hooray, hooray. Um, They matter all the time. Um, And I'm hoping that this new uh, found um, realization about state level and local politics um, will have a a sustaining run because um, what I understood um, Justice Alito saying in the decision, regardless if you agree with it or not, The justification in the decision is that many of these issues are state issues, and it is up to the states um, to, because of the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution, um, to have laws and to govern such areas. And I am uh, very hopeful that um, that the new uh, uh, light toward the state will allow or ignite um, some of these folks who feel um, uh, some kind of way about these decisions to start becoming more active and educated about state level politics and local politics, um, and then be able to uh, move uh, in that direction and hire candidates, elect candidates um, who align with their views. Well, and that brings us back full circle to where we started in our conversation about this poll, which is that a majority of Georgians polled by the AJC do believe that right, the right to choice should be recognized in the state of Georgia. But the fact is, our law virtually prohibits it. And so uh, there we come to that question. Will voters be motivated on the basis of hoping they can make a difference uh, in in that area. Kevin, uh, last word before we got to take our break. Well, here's the reality. Mm-hmm. Decades ago, the Republicans decided that they would focus on state legislatures and the judiciary. So even a massive mobilization in Georgia's upcoming election of people who want, would want to vote singularly on the abortion issue, they won't get anywhere. Because even if Stacey Abrams becomes our governor, she will not get any progress in, from, in, in terms of her point of view on abortion in a legislature that will be dominated by Republicans and is likely to be dominated by Republicans for the next decade, given gerrymandering. And that's where we are. Kevin, thank you for uh, that comment, because one of the, it, it, it gives me an opportunity to say that one of the subjects we're going to take up on tomorrow's show is whether this new lawsuit on behalf of Sister Song by the ACLU and other uh, pro-choice groups is going to have uh, any impact. Will the courts look at uh, the state constitution, which has a stronger uh, uh, provision for privacy than the U.S. Constitution, could that in fact make a difference in the courts in terms of Georgia's abortion law? And that's our conversation among other things, on tomorrow's show. Let's take our final break today. We'll be back with more in a minute.
John Bailey is editor of the Rome News Tribune. You're right up there in the heart of Marjorie Taylor Greene country. She's now, of course, uh, running against a Democratic challenger, Marcus Flowers. The astonishing thing that we've talked about on this show on a number of occasions is that race between the two of them, uh, they've each brought in about $10 million in a congressional race. That's staggering. Uh, tell us about how that race is shaping up. And there are very few of us who believe Marjorie Taylor Greene is really uh, jeopardized in this election. Well, I mean, I think to, 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 to me, take it back a few steps and let's go back to when we were, uh, when everybody was qualifying for that, that seat. So we had uh, three Democrats, I think six Republicans, and we also had a Libertarian. And the people who jumped in first, uh, which was Marks Flowers, a uh, Democrat, and then we had Colin uh, McCormick, which was also a Democrat, I think from Ringgold. Um, they, they jumped in and as soon as they jumped in and money started blowing in, um, you know, Holly McCormick, and I'm not trying to pick on her, uh, you know, when she jumped in, she was kind of an unknown for the, for the district, but I think she raised several million dollars like that. Um, and, and flowers also has too. I mean, we haven't seen that, that kind of money at all. Um, in the 14th district since its creation before uh, when we had Representative Gingry um, in the seat in the 11th district. I think he usually brought in about million, million, million point three, something like that. Graves, who was a pretty powerful member of Congress before he left, Tom Graves, excuse me, uh, before he left, and the only other person to hold the 14th district seat, um, maybe brought in, you know, one, one and a half million dollars as well uh, throughout his whole term. And he never really got a challenger. Now, you know, fast forward to this past election, you know, when Gray stepped down, you know, via a Twitter post um, and then all kinds of people jumped in, Republicans at first um, for the first run. And then we saw some money. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene brought a good bit of her own money to the race. And then this time, now that you have national headlines, almost, you know, back to back to back to back, um, money started flowing in and it, it's just, it's still coming. Democrats, you know, whoever jumped in. So right now you have Marcus Flowers, Angela Pence, who's a libertarian, didn't make the ballot, uh, couldn't get enough signatures. Uh, but so, you know, it's head to head, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Marcus Flowers, um, and they are hand over fist, money's coming in, and most of it from out of state and out of district. John, um, it's easy to look at Marjorie Taylor Greene from even the distance of Atlanta, Savannah, Columbus, parts of mm -hmm. the other parts of the state, and look at her and say she's kind of a conspiracy uh, kook. Um, but, but she's well-liked in your district. Obviously, she wins by, she is likely to win by a pretty big margin. Um, we've seen Patricia Murphy go out on the campaign trail with her and document how people embrace her when she sees them on the street. So the view of Marjorie Taylor Greene from up your way is very different from what people in other parts of the state may have, and across the country may have of her. Well, I mean, and that's, that's, I would argue that that's the difference between knowing someone or seeing someone personally and kind of their social media facade. Um, you know, if you saw the Saturday Night Live skit, that was very much a Marjorie Taylor Greene social media facade. Um, and then, you know, meeting her personally, she's very engaging. Uh, she comes up, asks you how your kids are, you know, that kind of thing. And I mean, so she's, she's, She's working it that way. I mean, Riley? you have to think. Oh, sorry, Bill. Going back to the earlier conversation in the show about people knowing what they're doing, right? Marjorie Taylor Greene is very smart at the things she does. She had this kind of social media rise that we saw in the same way that we saw the former president, you know, and how he leveraged social media to kind of um, create this can do no wrong, can say no wrong um, figure, right, to, to their voters. And it's easy for us to sit here in Atlanta, sit in other places of the state and be like, how can people still vote for her when she says these things, does these things that are so controversial, so uh, so wrong, right? But it's going to the district and, you know, getting the view, and I'm glad we have John here to talk about it, that it paints a very different story. Um, all right. Um Kevin, 
you know, there's always this question in terms of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm sure you get it at the AJC. I get it every time we mention her name and the latest controversy on the show. Our listeners say, why do you talk about her? All you're doing is giving her more attention. All you're doing is giving her more opportunity to raise money uh, out there among the people who uh, 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 like her and support her. Um, but that's a two-edged sword. You, you can't really, as a journalist, ignore some of the tactics and some of the uh, uh, outrageous positions she tries to uh, to sell to the, uh, not just Georgians, but to the American people. Yeah, and, you know, that's always a tough thing for journalists. But in the end, I think our job is to get things out in the open and let people, the public, and voters make their own decisions. And in the end, like, no matter how you feel about Marjorie Taylor Greene, she is accountable to those voters in her district. Bottom line, she has an opponent. The Democrats have every chance to uh, support that opponent. And if they don't, if people think she's outrageous and wrong and dangerous in all the ways she's been described, then voters ought to be convinced of that as well. And if they're not, then I think it's time to, to ask why, not blame people who are making sure what she does is available for public scrutiny. Well, just to put a finishing point on this, um, John mentioned a little earlier in the show how the map was redrawn in the 14th. So there's now portions of Cobb County in the district. And uh, Tammy, when that happened, there are a lot of Cobb County voters who woke up and said, we don't want Marjorie Taylor Greene representing us. And to everyone's point, let's see what the voters say, right? And, and see what the turnout is going to be, what the participation rate will be. I'm hoping that it will be higher than it was in the midterm election and definitely higher than it was in the primary um, so that we can see what happens when voters take their power of citizenship. All right. Um, before we leave, Kevin, I want to turn to one last issue, at least briefly, because John Ossoff has been making uh, news lately. The AJC has certainly followed it. I think you have up there at the Rome News Tribune as well, uh, uh, John. Uh, Ossoff is really leading this charge to get to the bottom of what apparently are deplorable conditions at the Atlanta Federal uh, prison. And your story in the AJC today, which I think uh, Tia Mitchell wrote, uh, talks about an official from the prison who told the subcommittee Ossoff is heading that the rats, the rat situation in the prison was so bad that they opened doors to the prison to allow cats to come in. And the comment from that witness was, you know, it's never a good idea when you open prison doors. Kevin, it's not, it's a, it's a pretty important story that I am sorry to say we haven't covered at all on the show. So just for a couple of minutes, we ought to talk about it. You know, we have done a fair amount of work both on state, uh, particularly on state prisons uh, in our, with our investigative reporters. And it's a, it's a very hard topic to cover because prisons by their nature are, you know, protected and difficult to access and all of that. Um, here's what I've learned about it is that, there, of course, is a school of thought that, well, why would we care about these criminals and the conditions they have to live in? They somehow deserve that. But I think it's important to remember that people who are incarcerated are also very vulnerable to, to conditions. And we have seen a lot of reaction in that direction. And I think that that's where this is headed, where people of, you know, of goodwill and common sense realize, look, we are all going to have people in our society who need to be incarcerated and removed from society but they ought to be treated reasonably well and fairly. And that's really what I think the issue that Ossoff has latched onto here. Um, Riley, just before we have to leave, um, there are obviously going to be people in our audience who wish John Ossoff weren't their senator. They would rather have seen a Republican, a conservative in that role. But I think you got to give Ossoff credit. He's not up for re-election for quite a long time now, but he has made sure. He's been very energized, very aggressive in taking on issues that he thinks not only are important, but are going to make sure he's in the public eye. Yeah, they went as, even as far as subpoenaing the director of the um, federal prison system because he wasn't going to come in initially. And, I, you know, I think these very 
specific issues too, they hit home with a lot of people, right? And I think that's what Asad has going for him in these very kind of niche investigations that he's, you know, taken an interest in. Uh, the one thing, though, Tammy, he does have to be careful a little bit about is not not outshining uh, Raphael Warnock right now, because Warnock is up v- very soon for re-election, and he's got to be a little careful uh, about not stepping on Warnock at this point. Sure. At the same time, as Riley said, these are important issues. Um, if When someone is incarcerated, they are a ward of the government. So they are in the complete care of our government. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm sorry to cut you short on uh, that, uh, Tammy Greer, but we are so completely out of time. And I want to get one chance to thank everybody for being with us, starting with you, uh, Tammy. We always love having you on the show. Good luck getting your forums together for the candidates. Riley Bunch. Thank you for being back with us on our Double Riley show, which included Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC. And um, John Bailey, it's so nice to have uh, you here as editor of the Rome News Tribune. We need to have you come back because we want to spend more time uh, in understanding what's happening up in that northwest corner of Georgia. So thank you, too, for uh, being with us as well. Uh, we're back tomorrow with another brand new show, of course. Um Uh, I hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody. Thank you.